culture to have such a diversity within the uh, within the Jewish community, uh, and uh, and that's certainly the vision of Valley Beit Midrash to uh, to first of all recognize the diversity within the Jewish community and to create a culture of uh, of religious pluralism. Needless to say, we could use a dose of that today, uh, and uh, why not model it here in Phoenix? Um, so it's always a joy to be with my colleague, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, and uh, nice to, uh, before we uh, kindle our, uh, uh, re rededicate our lights, actually a week from Thursday, a week from Thursday, December 3rd, uh, there's going to be a panel here. Rabbi Chernow is going to uh, facilitate a panel with Rabbi Shapiro, Rabbi Wasserman, uh, and me to look at Hanukkah in creative different ways. So um, you're invited to return a, uh, uh, a week from Thursday. Wonderful to see my colleague Rabbi Saralea here. Uh, welcome. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to my friend and colleague, Rabbi Yankowitz, to introduce our <coughs> guest tonight. Very nice. Awesome. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> Always great to be with Rabbi Linder and at Solel. A lot of, uh, a lot of great energy in this, in this uh, wonderful institution. And great to see so many friends in the room. So thank you. So with a lot of darkness in the world, as was alluded to, I feel like coming together to, to learn some Torah, open our hearts and minds on a... On a weeknight, is really a powerful thing, so thank you. It's, I, feel, I feel inspired by you all. So, um, we have a wonderful program with a first-rate scholar tonight. Rabbi Rachel Berkovitz is a great scholar, a faculty member of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. Anyone ever study at Pardes? Even for a minute? Okay? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Like you walked in and you saw it? Like if, if you ever want to study in Jerusalem and you want to go to a co-ed, uh, non-denominational, pluralistic place for high-level learning or, or beginning learning, whatever you want to do, it's a great place to go. Uh, and she's an expert on topics concerning women and Jewish law. She spent years studying Jewish texts in both traditional and academic frameworks at Midrashat Lindenbaum, the Shalom Hartman Institute, and Hebrew University. In 2015, Rabbi Berkowitz has completed her studies at Beit Midrash Harel and received ordination from Rabbi Hefter and Rabbi Sperber. In addition to teaching, Rabbi Berkowitz lectures all over the world, focusing on Jewish law's approach to, to women's issues. She has published entries in the Jewish Women, a comprehensive historical encyclopedia, is the editor-in-chief and, and halakhic editor of Tashma Jofa's uh, Halakhic Source Guide series, and recently published a book entitled A Daughter's Recitation of Mourner's Kaddish. She's a founding member of Congregation Shira Kadasha, a progressive Halakhic minion. Anyone gone there before? Okay, wonderful uh, place to visit, which is enriched by both male and female participation in synagogue ritual. Uh, tonight is a very, uh, a very unprovocative topic uh, that we're addressing. I've only gotten to know uh, Rachel very recently, but I've been very inspired. She's a very delightful insightful uh, person and a very dynamic educator. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Michal Berkowitz. Thank you for such a warm uh, introduction. Thanks to both of you. I want to sit, but I feel like you guys are very far away from me, but I'll try sitting because you'll tell me if you can hear me. First of all, I really think it's an honor to be here in Phoenix because Pardes, it sounds like what you're doing here is very similar to what we try to do at Pardes. 
that have Jews from all different backgrounds and all different flavors across the Jewish spectrum come together to just focus on our traditional texts and learn from one another. And everyone bringing themselves to the text really creates more of a dynamic experience for everyone, and we can all learn from one another. So I feel right at home here. There aren't that many places in the world that I think do that. So it's a pleasure to be in a, a, a sister, a fellow community. Okay, what we're going to look at is some text on uh, sexual pleasure and desire. Um, as my bio states so very strongly, usually um, the topic I like teaching about is about the status of women within, the, within halakha. However, in the past few years at Pardes, I had more and more students coming to ask me questions about what do traditional Jewish texts say about issues and sexuality. And really people from, as I said, across the spectrum, not necessarily planning on living their lives, according to halacha, some yes and some no, but just wanting to know what, what does our tradition have to say about it, right? We, we know that what Judaism has to say about food and eating and that type of pleasure. We know what Judaism has to say about ritual performance and the cycle of the seasons and the holidays. But this is something so central to human existence, and not that many people like to talk about what Judaism has to say. And so it actually spurred me to create a course that I just started teaching last year that's a full semester course that meets two afternoons a week for two and a half hours each time. So you're just getting a little, little, little taste. But um, so that's what I'd like to look at together with you. I'm always interested in looking at, at traditional text um, to see what they have to say. I'm putting out a disclaimer from the beginning. The majority of traditional Jewish texts that talk about sexuality are talking about a man and a woman in a marital relationship. However, I strongly believe, as with many things that don't always directly touch on our life, that the meta ideas or the, or the thoughts or morals and values that we see in the text can be applicable, to, I think, to any sexual relationship that one has. Um, so read, I don't know where everyone's coming from. If, if it's applicable to you as a male-female in a marital relationship, great. If it's applicable in some other type of sexual relationship that you're having, I hope you're open to see, finding what's right for you within the text. So that's the beginning. I like to talk fast. I'm open to questions in the middle, so if you want to stop me or ask me something, or if I don't explain something quick, clearly, or you just want to ask a question, feel free to do that. All right, we're going to start. Everyone has a text in front of them? Great. Um, I open with a text from the Torah a verse in Leviticus that you might be familiar with, that on the face of it doesn't have anything to do with sexuality. It's a statement that God spoke to Moses, and then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and the bear el kol adat b'nei Israel, v'amarta alehem kedoshim tiyu ki kadosh ani Hashem elokechem. That um, you, the Jewish people, should be holy because I, God, am holy. It's a sort of very general statement. It sounds like a beautiful statement. We don't exactly know what it means to be holy. If we were studying Torah, we would read the rest of the verses afterwards, and we would assume that whatever came in the list afterwards somehow um, it was an explanation of what it means to be holy. But you'll have to take my word for it that a lot of the traditional commentaries on this verse think that holiness is linked to sexual behavior. Rashi on the verse says it. The Ramban talks about it. I'm going to bring you one text here, but we could we could spend a whole class just looking at this one verse. That's not my intention. But for whatever reason, there's a strong tradition to understand that being holy is linked to how you're going to behave with your partner sexually. So here is an example. It's from a book that the entire title of the book is called Egeret HaKodesh, the epistle or the letter about holiness. It's attributed to Nachmanides, 
However, um, most academic scholars think maybe it was a student of his or in a school of his, so I just say it's anonymous. We don't know what sure it is. But what's interesting about this small book um, is that it was definitely read and used a lot. We have many manuscripts of it, and it was throughout the ages the Jewish community liked to read it. Um, so it's about, um, it's about the holiness and the sexual relationship. Now, I admit that this book has a tendency to evoke Kabbalistic ideas. And the thing that I admit is I know nothing about Kabbalistic <coughs> ideas. Probably some of you in this room know more about it than I do. But that being said, I think we, without knowing those details, we can still learn a lot from it. So here is a selection in source number two. It says, Da ki chibur zehu inyan kadosh v'naki. Know that this union, this chibur, this connection, is something that is holy and clean. And then it says a very interesting thing. When it's done in the appropriate way with the appropriate intention. And part of what we're going to figure out here is what, what should be that appropriate intention. But before it explains that to us, it says something that I think if you grew up with a healthy attitude towards sex, you know, but it's good for it to be stated in a book like this. It says, it, it repeats a number of times that the link between human beings is something that is appropriate and there's nothing ugly about it, there's nothing degrading about it. And the proof that they know that there's nothing inappropriate or negative about um, sexual intercourse is from the fact that human beings were created with sexual organs by God. And nothing God would do would be degrading, not nice, etc. And he brings a proof from the very fact that before the transgression that happened in the Garden of Eden, he says that uh, Adam and Eve were naked and they had no embarrassment about it. Their sexual organs were the same as their eyes, their ears, their hands, and there was no difference about it. And then he makes a very, very interesting statement. So he says, from the view of God, just the, these are just part of human being's body. But where can they get some type of negative use? It depends how human beings use them. And he brings an interesting example. It's, um, let's say, five lines from the bottom of this first page in the Hebrew. We can see parallels in English. He says, he, he gives an example, he says, about your hands. He says, Perush, kasher hayadayim be'et kotvim sefer Torah b'tahara heim mechubadot u'meshubachot u'keshegonvot arasot zavar b'unguneh heim mechunot kachem kleha mishkal ladam. So he says, just the way your hands, if you write a sefer Torah with your hands, if you write a scroll, then your hands are holy and they're doing holy work. But if you use your hands to steal something, then your hands are doing a disgusting act and an evil act, right? So it's nothing intrinsic in the hand itself. It's how human beings choose to use the hand. And he says, same is the same for the sexual organs. It depends on what you do with them. Um, I'm flipping the page. We had all day. We'd read every single word. I love text. So I can never cut them down. So I'm just reading excerpts <laughs> about them. Um, sort of in the, in the middle, he says, um, he repeats this idea that it took three lines down from the top in Hebrew. The same thing. Everything that God does, that is holy and, and complete and nice. It's only, it's, and, and there's nothing not nice about a human being's organs. It's only what a human being does with them. And so then the question is, when you read something like this, you start, you, we could think, like, what does that mean? How should we use our sexual organs? What should we do with them? And you might possibly think, um, as some strains of Christianity do, that, okay, then I'm only supposed to use my sexual organs for reproduction, and that would be holy work, possibly. And all the pleasure, etc., maybe that's not appropriate behavior. But the answer to that is 
completely not correct. Right? Well, the main point that I want to show you is that the mainstream view within Judaism really appreciates the idea that human beings enjoy and get ple pleasure and have desires, sexual desires that need to be satisfied. You, that's my main premise. You know it now, you can go home, but it's interesting to see. <laughs> it's interesting to see in the text. Um, I bring a, a quote from Rabbi Soloveitchik, who is one of the leading thinkers and philosophers of the modern Orthodox movement in America in the last century. Um, he is once again speaking about male-female marriage, but he says the following. Judaism did not overlook or underestimate the physical aspect of marriage. On the contrary, once sacrificial withdrawal from the sinful erotic paradise of change of variety is completed, the natural element in marriage comes to the fore. The two partners owe each other not only fidelity, but also full gratification of their sexual needs. Refusal or failure by one of the partners to satisfy the conjugal rights of the other is sufficient reason for divorce. Each one must absorb these laws of consortium with regard to the other. The marriage must not be converted into an exclusively spiritual fellowship. Marriage without carnal enjoyment and erotic love is contrary to human nature and is to be dissolved. It's very strong language. We're I didn't bring you texts that show it, but it is true that if one partner refuses to have sexual intercourse with the other, that's grounds, it's legal grounds for divorce. Um, and it's definitely understood that that is an element, the enjoyment of sex is an element within a relationship between two people. I bring the next text because people sort of maybe have heard this, but... It, yeah, sure. That's mutual, correct? Meaning? Uh, meaning that a woman has rights just as a man has rights. Yes, we're going to see that. We're going to see that. In fact, yes. She definitely has rights. In fact, there's a mitzvah, we're going to see in one second, in the third text that we're going to read in one second, that the husband is supposed to satisfy the woman's sexual needs. And for sure, if he... Re Unfortunately, there's a problem in traditional Jewish law about when women can get divorce, get a divorce. It has to be the man who initiates the divorce. But there's certain times when the court can compel the husband to give a divorce, and a refusal of, refusal of sexual... Intercourse is a reason that the, there can be a force of divorce. Not that it gets instituted all the time nowadays, but if you look in the text, that's a legitimate reason. Um, what? I'm sorry? Um, um, I just wanted to bring you the Rambam because he says something very interesting. Oh, sorry, just, yeah. just one thing. On the, yeah. I think one thing Soloveitchik does is that if the Rambam just said that we should not feel shame about our organs, I think what Soloveitchik is <laughs> saying, we should not feel shame about the desire connected to the organs. Correct. Right, right. meaning I brought the first thing because you could have thought that maybe the shame or the negative would be uh -huh. to say I have sexual desire and I want to argue no, that's not what he mm -hmm. is meaning. We're going to have to, uh, there are not, we'll, we'll see. I'm going to bring more quotes when we get around what I think he is meaning. Um, it's clear that, um, I, I hope that I will not only be able to show you that the texts appreciate um, sexual desire, but that the, the need for that sexual desire is, becomes a halachic need. I can use the word halacha, right? It becomes a need within Jewish law that's going to have ramifications for how law is practiced. I hope I'll be able to show you that in a second if you understand. Yes? That's only between man and woman? Or what about man and man? Or woman and woman? Um, okay. You ready? Wanted to go there for right from the beginning before I didn't say anything. Um, so I, as I said at the beginning... The text that we're looking at here, because the majority of texts that are written are about a man and a woman, but I was just talking to Rabbi Shmuley, we did a little interview beforehand, and so I was talking about same-sex sex acts, and there are, I, I, I'm already jumping the gun here, <laughs> okay, 
when I just said that the idea that one sexual desire should be considered a legal need, a halachic need. So one of the major leaders of orthodoxy in Israel, when talking about men, male sex acts, talks about the fact, he, he won't go to the extreme, and I know this is problematic for someone, he won't allow anal sex because there's a verse in the Torah that prohibits it, but he says we have to have some release for these people. It can't be that their basic human needs are not going to be met. And he suggests that two male partners who are partners for life that the halakha, the Jewish law, would, would, would say it would be okay for them to have other releases for their sexual desires. He do, he's talking in nice language, so he doesn't explicitly say, but I presume that might mean oral sex. I presume that might be using your hands, limbs, etc. But he uses that language. He says you can't be stringent. The halakha has to have a release for human desire, which gets to my end point before I even started, that I want to show you cases in which um, that the idea that someone has sexual desire turns into a legal need that therefore we have to say, okay, you could do something. You asked me about women to women. I think that the halakha t talks about that less, but it's less problematic because there's no verse in the Torah that prohibits it, and you could say that it is okay. That was standing on one foot answering like a very <laughs> serious question. But we're going to go back to something simple and straightforward, which is the Rambam, Maimonides, in the laws of, the Sh of Shabbat. Um, in laws of Shabbat. And here, right, Shabbat, there are two aspects. There are many aspects of Shabbat. Well, one of the aspects of Shabbat is that we're supposed to enjoy Shabbat. There's something called Oneg. I don't know if you've ever, they have sometimes social events on Friday night where you go to an Oneg and you drink good drinks and you eat cake and you enjoy <laughs> yourself. But that's a legal aspect of Shabbat that you're supposed to enjoy yourself on Shabbat. So in the laws of Shabbat, Maimonides says, Tashmisha mipta mi'oneg Shabbathu. Having intercourse is part of the way you enjoy Shabbat. Therefore, scholars should, who are healthy, meaning that they can perform sexual acts, should have sex every Friday night. And so here's a very interesting thing. I'm supposed to enjoy Shabbat. My experience of Shabbat is supposed to I'm enjoying it. And so the way I enhance my Shabbat to enjoy it is by having sex. And presumably, sex is enjoyable, and therefore that's how I elevate my Shabbat. So there's like a hand-in-hand hand of something here which we think of Shabbat as a, it may be in the realm of my relationship with God, but my relationship with another human being and how much I enjoy it makes Shabbat all the more enjoyable, according to the Rambam. So these are two sort of in introductory statements that I wanted to show you about the law thinking about the enjoyment of sex. And then we'll get to the specifics where you just asked me, does it go both ways? So there's a verse in the Torah that um, it's not the best context in the Torah. It's talking about a man who sort of had a maidservant that he turned into a wife, and now he actually wants to get a second wife, which we could speak all about that for a long time, but we'll put it to the side. But when he gets a second wife, the, the Torah says the first wife, he shouldn't... Uh, he shouldn't um, diminish or he shouldn't take away any of her rights that are apparently the rights of what a married woman gets. And so the Pasuk says, If he takes another wife, her food and her clothes, okay, that seems reasonable, and her conjugal rights. The word onata, which literally means season or her time period, is understood by every to understand that the wife is owed some type of sexual pleasure and he cannot diminish that, if, even if he takes another wife. So you might have thought, I don't know why people take a second wife. Thank God we don't really do that today. But possibly because he's attracted to somebody else. But he can't forget about the first partner and what her needs were. This mitzvah, this mitzvah of giving the wife pleasure, 
is taken, because Jewish law is very technical, if you've learned, right, and thinks about the specifics, right, they actually think about, like, what does that mean? How many times a week does a husband have to have sex with his wife? And there's a Mishnah that talks about it. It opens with a, a machloket, about a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, about can I make a vow that I'm going to refrain from doing, having sexual intercourse. So Beit Shammai says you're allowed to make a vow saying you'll refrain for two weeks, and Beit Hillel says no, you're only allowed to do it for one week. That would be what you're allowed to limit. And then they have a discussion about how long someone could go away maybe for work. Right? On the one hand, I'm supposed to be sure I'm having sex with my wife. On the other hand, I might have a profession, like if I'm a camel driver or I'm a sailor, that takes me away for a long amount of time. We have to let you have a parnasah. You have to work. So the halacha says if you are just a regular person who works on your own, you're independent, in theory, it seems... I don't know, I was going to say, it seems a bit much for me, but maybe I shouldn't have that on tape. You're supposed to have sex every day. <laughs> it's the whole yom, every day. And if you're a hired worker and, like, you're not free, or how hard are you supposed to have sex twice a week, then if you're, uh, right, and then it goes on, let's say, if you're a sailor, it could be once in six months. So um, <coughs> you might find it, like, a little bit intense that the rabbis are trying to, um, you know, tell you how often you have to have sex, but it, I think it's supposed to show this idea that this is something to be taken seriously, like all other mitzvot, and there's going to be laws about it. Yes, question in the back. Um, yeah, so if somebody has to uh, fulfill the obligation every day, if it takes two or three wives, he has to do... So, so you're at, you say something quite interesting. So, so the, rab, it, it, the, the rabbis of the Talmud talk about this, and they say they say Eitzat Tova is that uh, you shouldn't have more than four wives because at least then conjugally you could like be with the, you could split the month with around and everyone gets basically a week. But they talk about this. There's a discussion. Thank goodness we have the Takadat of Rabbeinu Gershon, a very early decree that says. That says you shouldn't have more than one wife. Didn't that run well, the, out? Wasn't that just for a thousand it, years? It, it did run out, but basically the Jewish community has agreed <laughs> to continue to uphold it. And I say thank God on that one. Well, isn't um, the saying that it's for the men to have sex every day? So maybe that would, in their mind, justify having multiple wives is not to wear out, so to speak. Um, but but it's talking about the it's talking about ha'ona. That word ona okay. is referring to what he owes one woman. Okay. It, this doesn't sound like they're having multiple wives. Okay. Um, the Rambam thinks this is in, he has all sorts of views about like how if you're healthy or not and he thinks this is way too much. Um, but uh, it sounds like a little bit too much to me. But I'm bringing it to you just so you should see that they've like they've, they've created this idea or, or from the very early age of the idea of that there's an obligation to the woman. This this plays out. We're going to see in, in um, well, let's read one more source, and then I'm going to say how it plays out. This is from one of the minor tractates. It says, what should a person do so that he should have rich sons, right? Wouldn't we all wish that we have that? It says, you should do chafetzei shemayim v'chafetzei ishto. You should do the desires of heaven and the desires of your wife. And I say, well, what are the desires of heaven? That is to give money to the poor, good value. What is this on source number five? What is the desires of his wife? And then we have a dispute. I don't fully get the difference. Maybe someone can explain what they think the difference is. Rabbi Eliezer says, You should seduce her at the moment of sex. And Rabbi Yehuda says, You should make her happy at the moment of intercourse. So, um, and um, so they have this argument of what does it mean, though, that you, that you are making your wife happy? They assume it's linked to intercourse. And one is either you're 
I don't know if seducing implies the foreplay aspect of it, and making her happy implies the actual act itself or something like There are many commentaries who try to um, discuss it. Rashi says, what does it mean to make her happy? Even if it's not your set time, if she desires intercourse, then you should be sure that you have intercourse with her. And so this is what I was going to tell you that's, I think, very interesting. Because the halakha has stated that there is this mitzvah of having intercourse with your wife and making her happy when you do it, there's a lot written about how you should do this, meaning halacha likes to have books on everything and tell you how to do everything. But particularly for the Haredi world that has a lot of separation of the sexes, and they don't interact at all, they don't have, don't learn about sexuality from the media and from the news and from TV and from their friends or whatever. They have lots of guidebooks that actually go about saying things. I'm going to show you one right here. Um, this is not my translation. This is um, from a book called Darchei Tara that was written by one of the Svarti chief rabbis. He passed away in 2010. And the whole book is about how you do it. And to a certain extent, it, it creates, a, in my opinion, kind of a stereotype of what women want, um, which might be okay, but it's just interesting. Um, so he says, just as a husband is obligated by the Torah to have a relationship with his wife at the proper time, the mitzvah so he's required to make his wife happy at the performance of the act. The Beit Yosef, which is the Shulchan Aruch of Yosef Karo, explains the meeting of pleasing one's wife according to Rabbi Eliezer, right, we saw, are the preparations surrounding marital relations, which require a husband to show his wife signs of love and desire. And the meaning, according to Rabbi Yehud, is a husband should make her happy by having relations with her when, when she gives signs that she so desires, even if it's not the specific times of the ona, whatever his job is. And then if you turn the page, you'll see a bit more of the stereotype that I'm talking about. Putting her in the mood. The preparations preceding marital relations are often more important for the wife than the marital relations themselves. Therefore, before nighttime, the husband should express extra happiness and love towards his wife, to enhance the love between them, to please her by his actions, to speak words of endearment with kisses and hugs and similar displays of affection. And then this is what I found very interesting. When this type of loving interaction precedes marital relations, the husband is fulfilling the commandment, love your fellow as yourself, the hafta l'recha kamocha. For if he rushes forward to engage in the act, he satisfies his own lust, but leaves his wife unsatisfied and estranged. So this part to me is very interesting because um, <coughs> I've not done any scientific studies, but I've heard from my students and things that sometimes, even in the modern world with our sexual norms, etc., that a lot of times women's sexual needs aren't always met, even in the most modern relationship. And that, and here in the halakha, it's built in, and like the men get these sort of guidebooks that says you have to make sure she is enjoying it. That's part of the mitzvah. I know you're laughing. I didn't bring you some even weird, funnier ones where there's a very famous letter written by the Steipler Rebbe, a very Haredi rabbi in Yerushalayim that was like passed around to the yeshiva bachram, to the men leading yeshiva. And there he has like very clear, he says, you should hug and kiss for 15 minutes before. And then he says, after the act, you should lie with her for half an hour. Like very, very clear rules. <laughs> about, <laughs> but it's just interesting because it, it's, it's sort of, it takes this realm of sexuality and maybe makes it mechanical, but it puts in the realm of like, here's the rules, here's how you do it. And the idea is to make sure she's enjoying the act. Um, okay, we won't, you can read on your own the rest of what, he says one other thing we're going to see in the text. He actually says, this is an interesting thing that's in the halakha, 
They're not so interested in you talking about things not having to do with the sex act during the sex act. You can, you can, um, excuse me, um, God bless you. You can, um, you can talk about things that are going to raise your desire, but they don't want you to talk about mundane things, which is very interesting to me. Not that you might want to talk about mundane things in the sex act either, but what it says to me is that you, you're supposed to be fully present there. You're supposed to be thinking about, you can say things that are going to arouse desire, that are going to talk about love, but when you're doing it, that's what you're supposed to be focused on, on the enjoyment of the act. Um, okay. Then, as I talk about, yes? What is Ona? What, is, what time period is that that you're referring to? That's, that's what that Mishnah and Ketubot is trying to answer, ha meaning that her, her right for conjugal rights. And then they say, depending on what your relationship is, it's extra. At least in the modern Orthodox community, which I'm more familiar with, I don't think there's any like checklist like I need it this many times uh, a month or a week. But there is an understanding that it's uh, that that there is an idea that the husband is supposed to please the wife. Yes. No, I was gonna say that when she finishes her period, because then she's behind, she's not allowed to, and she has to go to the mikveh. So it's probably around that. For sure, right, in, in traditional, in traditional Jewish homes, men and women are not having sex when she has her period. So it's for sure, the, there's a lot of things written on the, about the night she goes to the mikvah. But then as, as, as Rashi says, it could be any time that she desires sex afterwards or at a different point. There, the idea is to meet the sexual need. What, go, continuing with the stereotype to a certain extent, um, the halakha has a certain sense about what they perceive men's desire to be. Um, and all the, all the sections that's going to talk about other sex acts that aren't vaginal penetration, other positions, are sort of, it seems, you can tell me what you think, to be a perception of what a man might want. There's a very interesting text in, this is source number eight, um, in, in Masechet Bechorot, that um, says the following starting on the second line of the Hebrew. It says, HaKol Mishamshim Panim Keneged Oref, Chus Mishlosha, Shemishamshim Panim Keneged Panim, Ve'elohem, Dag V'adam V'nachash. It says all, I think they're talking about creatures or animals here, they have intercourse face to the back of the neck, meaning rear entry, right? Except for three who have intercourse face to face. The three are fish, human beings, and snakes. I did not research this, but my students Googled it, and apparently it is true about fish and snakes. I have no idea how snakes have... Of course, maybe you know more. You have a lot of snakes here. Um, I don't know, but apparently this is so. Um, and then the text says, well, why are these three singled out? And Rav, um, Rav Dimi says, because... That God, the Shrina, spoke to them. So the Shrina spoke to fish with the Yonah, with the whale, uh, with the whale of Jonah. Human beings God has spoken to in the Torah. And the Nachash is the, the snake in, in the Garden of Eden that God spoke to. So here there's a very interesting comparison being made here somehow. Because God speaks to this creature or human being face to face, and that experience should be mirrored in the sex act that these people should have, these animals and people should have sex face to face, which I, 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 don't, I don't even fully understand what it's saying. That's something about the intensity of the relationship with the other and the divine is mirrored <coughs> in the relationship uh, in the sex act. Not just for human beings, but for the fish and the snake. When you read this text, give me one second, you might think that therefore it sounds like you would have to have intercourse this way. Well, that's not going to be the case. We're going to find out. Yes, what did you no, ask? I'm just thinking about fish. Yeah. But, uh, 
But the eggs are fertilized outside the fibro's body or inside? Yeah. That I don't know. I well, no. It's both even. Well, male and female, the once in a horse fish. It doesn't need anybody. The seahorse? I thought that yes, he's, he's been. Well, when you spoke of the whale of jo and Jonah, yeah. that makes more sense. You know, like maybe it's just something in the translation that. Or something. Cause well, they say dog. Dog means fish. So maybe it's talking about specifically whales? Possibly. Well, because I know whales are those fish. Whales are mammals. Yeah. I should have researched it more. I did not go into the research. Everyone can take out their phones and Google about fish and, and um, snakes and report back to me. We'll see. We'll take, we'll take the text. Of these things, I actually think that the rabbis have usually have done their research, but we'll see. Most of them weren't divers. What? Most of them weren't divers. Weren't divers? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have like scuba gear and things like that? Um, okay. Beseder. We'll put that to the side for a second. Okay? So, um, so, uh, so it seems like you might think that this is how they would have to have intercourse, but we're going to find out otherwise. Text number nine is, is a fascinating text, an interesting text, and it's, out, it's a little bit challenging, but let's try to unpack it. Um, it says the following. Rabbi Yochanan um, ben Dabai says, he says that the, the, the Malchei Hasharet, the, the, the ministering angels, told him four things. Okay? That in a moment we're going to find out that we don't agree with him. So when you're listening to what he says, take it with a grain of salt. Um, he says that people are born lame because uh, their parents um, overturned the table. Okay? Which seems to be the phrase for anal sex. They are born dumb because they kiss that place. And they're born deaf because they converse during intercourse. And they're born blind because they look at that place. Um, okay. But don't worry. He, he claims this is what the angels said. I don't know how much sex angels are having. Probably not much. But, um, but, uh, but then Rabbi Yochanan says this view is the view of Rabbi Yochanan of Dubai. And our sages say, Right? It's not the halacha does not go. So he said his opinion was all these other types of sex acts very negative, so negative that something bad's going to happen to your children. I don't know if they really believe that or they couldn't police what was happening in the bedroom. So they thought if they scared you, then maybe you wouldn't do it. But the rabbis say no, the law doesn't go according to him. And then here's the parable you're not gonna li you're gonna like, but you're not gonna like, right? Um, he says the following. He says, Anything a man wants to do to his wife, he can do. We're gonna talk about consent in a minute. It is that you need consent, even though the sentence sounds like it doesn't sound like that. Anything a man wants to do with his wife, he can do. And here's the great mashal, the uh, parable. Mashal lebasar haba mi tabach. It's like, uh, you've already read it. If he wants to eat it salted, he could eat it salted. If he wants to eat it grilled, he could eat it grilled. If he wants to cook it, right? Meaning, meat is per permitted. If you're half kosher meat, it's permitted. And different people have different appetites. Some people like their meat well done. Some people like it grilled. Same thing with sex acts. The assumption is, I'll take your question in one second. The assumption is sex, sex acts are permitted. And so it does, you might like this, you might like that. Going back to all the lists that the ministering angel said. Yes, what's your question? Can you refer to the Hebrew 
Hebrew word of Baal Veisha because Baal is owner. Yes. It doesn't say a man and a woman. It says an owner. Like but wait, what, what Pesach, this text doesn't use the word Baal. I know, but the whole relationship between a couple and a man and a woman, isn't it based on that Baal Veisha? Why, why there's no word for like husband? It's, it's Baal, it's Baal Bai. Well, there uh, there is the word ish, ishi. I don't. You're you you you're right that the word baal exists so in he modern gets the Hebrew. Woman like a, his property. But I don't know what you're quoting because the uh, no, in these texts Chazal aren't using the word baal. They're using Adam, and um, it sometimes says ishvisha. You're right. The word baal is a very offensive word. It means master. I try never to use it when I'm speaking Hebrew. I always say ishi or benzuki, and then Israelis correct me because they think I don't know the word and then they think I'm like not. But um, there is a nice pasuk in Hosea where he's talking about uh, the relationship between God and the Jewish people, and he says, "Don't call me Baali, call me Ishi, call me my husband." Right. So there, there is, there are other words. You're right that there is a tradition. Yeah, there are some other. There, there are different. As you know, there are many voices within Jewish tradition. Some of them are, are one way, and so I'm happy to talk about that issue with you more afterwards. Here, here it says Adam, but it sounds like he can do whatever he wants with his wife. I promise you we're going to look at sources having to do with consent in a moment. Here I think what the text is trying to tell you with this imagery about the meat, I don't think they're trying to say women is meat. I think they're trying to say that, that there's an appetite and a desire that human beings have, and once something is permitted, there's an individual preference. And just the way it's permitted to eat meat although I know we have some vegans in the room, but um, that, that within that, right, within that, uh, some people like, might like, like it cooked this way, someone like it cooked that way, same thing. The sex act is something that is permitted, and now we see that it's permitted, you might have thought it was only permitted to have kids or something, but it's permitted presumably to enjoy, because then it says, well, some people like anal sex, some people like oral sex, some people, right, and that is, those are all permitted as opposed to what the ministering angel said. And then we have this interesting story, which also sounds a little bit where um, a woman comes to Rebbe, the, the editor of the Mishnah, and she says, Rebbe, arachti lo shulchan v'hofcho. I set the table for him, and he overturned it. Right? So it seems like she was offering sex. She presumed it was going to be vaginal intercourse, and then he desired anal intercourse. And the, the Rebbe answers her, B.T., the Torah made you permissible. What can I do? And then they tell another similar story where a different woman went to Rav and said a similar thing. And he says, how are you different from a fish? Um, meaning preference. So um, I, I, I'm going to repeat. Consent is very important. I just have to order the sources in a certain way. Oh, I, I promise you that I'm going to show you that all the texts say he can't do whatever he wants without consent. But we're just focusing on if these sex acts are permitted, and it seems to be that is the understanding. Whatever a person desires is within the realm of reasonable. I bring you the Torah, one of the major codes. I bring him because he just is succinct. He is, he is quoting Maimonides, who is also one of the major codes, and he says the following on source number 10. <laughs> So he says, whatever he wants, he could do. He can have intercourse whenever he wants. He can kiss whatever organ he wants. He can have vaginal intercourse. He can have anal intercourse. He can have 
intercourse using limbs. I don't know if that means rubbing or oral, whatever that means. And then he says, possibly, and I know this is opening like a huge can of worms that I'm going to try to just do very quickly, and you're going to probably want to ask lots of questions, as long as the man does not waste his seed or spill it. That's one verse. And then he goes on to quote, so let's focus on the second part, <laughs> that the Re, who's a famous, famous Tosafist from the time period just after Rashi, says, even if he spills his seed, it's permissible, meaning he could ejaculate during anal sex, he could ejaculate during oral sex, um, right, mutar uh, as long as, and this is like a kind of funny, that he does it occasionally, that it's not his main sexual um, desire, but if he sometimes desires it, it's okay. Okay? So I bring this, I don't know how much you know, but there is a tradition that exists within Judaism that we don't normally like men to spill their seed because they think seed is a life force, they do think that there's a value of using it for life to create a baby. But here I bring this to as an example that the, the need for, the desire for certain sex acts, at least according to the Rabbi, um, Rabbi Yitzchak, overrides that. Meaning, why does he permit it? Because that's what the guy desires. So if he desires to have anal sex, okay, so he ejaculates. We're going to allow this, the spilling of the seed because the, the desire for sex. If you don't believe me, I'm going to show you more modern people who explicitly say that. Um, and this is going to have ramifications for birth control within Jewish law, etc. Because if we say that sex acts purely for pleasure are going to be permissible, then that leads you to be able to prevent, um, prevent con uh, conception. Okay, we'll do a few more texts. It says here, 11, this is also um, within the time period of the codes. Right? If you didn't have it clearly, he says, What does it mean to kiss any limb? He still doesn't say it, but in that very specific place, meaning the vagina, it's permissible to kiss it. Presumably the opposite would be this, right? These halachot are written from what men can do, but presumably there should be no problem. The opposite, because the law isn't like Rabbi Yochanan and the ministering angels, um, and that you could do what you want. Okay, flip the page. Um... The Shulchan Aruch, the main code of Jewish law. What's really interesting here, right? I don't know how much you know about the Shulchan Aruch, Rav Yosef Karo, right? And in the 1500s. The way it's built is Rav Yosef Karo brings the Sephardi sack, and then there's an Ashkenazi gloss of Ramosha Esoles on it. Then they're sort of woven in one and within the other. Rav Yosef Karo wrote the book first. Rav Moshe Isolis was going to be writing his own code when he heard this was going to be published. He did a smart PR thing, and he said, oh, I'll, I'll publish my gloss with this, and it will get more press, and it worked very well for him. Um, so what's really interesting here is <coughs> I've been pretty much showing you the mainstream. I haven't been denying it, but Rav Yosef Karo actually takes a much more um, traditional ascetic, ascetic anti-pleasure view and he thinks you shouldn't be frivolous with your wife, and you shouldn't dirty your mouth with, with like talking about sexual things, and um, and he um, and he's sort of very much wanting to limit pleasure. And what's really interesting is the Rama, the Ashkenazi glass, quotes the Rambam, who's from Svarad, directly, and he says you can do whatever you want, and you can kiss her whatever you want, and have not, you can have anal sex and oral and oral sex and all those things. He goes that way. It's very interesting. Um, I only, I'm showing you this so you see how the law in some ways codifies both sides. Um, but then I, Rav Yosef Karo in his anti-pleasure line 
he says this really funny line. I'm going to have to find it because I'm going quickly. Um, he says, um, it's on the end, I'm on page 14, sort of the bottom in Hebrew. He says, He, he, he makes this claim. When the man is having sex to fulfill the conjugal rights, he should, not, he should try to have an intention not to enjoy himself. He should just be like a man who's paying um, a debt that he has to his wife. Okay, it's very quite funny, and he gets ripped into by the commentaries. If you flo fl flip the page, the Torah Emmet says on this line, Yesh litmoa, ech yezeh. How could this be? Could a man walk on coals and his feet won't be burned? Like, what are you saying? Not to have intention not to enjoy. Um, and then he brings lots of cases where he says, come on, everyone and all our great leaders throughout Jewish history have enjoyed sex. He quotes a story of Rav, who was a very famous rabbi in the Babylonian Talmud. He says, who we... Who we who we liken to um, Malach Hashem, an angel of God. And he says, we have stories where he was fooling around and having foreplay and doing his deeds with, because he desired it with his wife. And we know David HaMelech, Greg, David the king, he had intercourse with Bathsheba when even when he was old, the Talmud tells us he did it 13 times when it was just purely, he was old and he was just doing to enjoy. And then he brings the case of the fact that Shlomo, Solomon, had a thousand women, wives, right? And he said, well, what, who, what? Not all of them were wives. They were concubines. Okay, concubines. Sorry, we'll, we'll say women. He says nashim. It was my fault. I said women, wives. He just says nashim, women. Right? And he says, well, why, why would anyone ever have a thousand women? Purely for sexual pleasure. That's what he says. Right? And so he says, he says... Well, for exhaustion. Maybe. <laughs> um, um, he says, uh, what, what the Torah has permitted is completely permitted. There's not even like a little bit of uh, prohibition. Right? And, and there's no piety in refraining from, um, from desire. Right? There's nothing shameful or, shameful or improper about desire. Did you want to ask something? I'm sorry, right there with the glasses. Did you want to ask something? Do you want to say something? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, fine. So so it, it is true that we do have a voice. Rabbi Yosef Karo represents a voice that says no pleasure. But most people within the tradition, and definitely in the Ashkenazi tradition, and you could say even the Sephardim, because Rambam is a Sephardi, et cetera, think that pleasure, how can, you, how can you not have pleasure? And that, look, we have many examples of people who enjoyed sex, and that's fine. The more modern um, texts that I told you that exist around um, sexuality really talk about um, the wife's pleasure. So we were talking about different sex acts. So um, here, the question is, I have heard that a husband should try to give his wife pleasure. Does that mean to make her have an orgasm or just to be sensitive to her needs without necessarily bringing her to orgasm? With us, it can take ages. For, well, we don't need to hear about Can a husband massage her organ with, her, with his fingers in order to give her pleasure? So um, so he says, um, the husband has a very important holy duty of making his wife enjoy the marital union. This is an integral part of the mitzvah of onatah, right, onah, that we'll talk about. This includes getting her in the mood by doing things she likes and speaking lovingly to her before relations begin and bringing her to climax during relations whenever possible. Right, then he does the same stereotype of that women are more turned on by emotional love, yada, yada, yada. But at the bottom he says, if the husband finishes first, he should endeavor to have relations a second time in order that his, hus his wife climax before he does a second time. I didn't tell you this, but for whatever reason, the rabbis, and this goes back to the Talmud, 
think that if you want to have a good trick, a good patent to have male children, because of course they valued male children, we might think otherwise, the woman should orgasm first. So not that I'm valuing male children, but it's good for women, this idea that you have to make sure the woman has an orgasm first if you want male children. I do not know what the science behind that was. But so they Maybe say, right? Her climaxing before him is a segula for having male offspring. He is also allowed to use his fingers to bring her pleasure, as in clitoral stimulation. Um, this is number fifteen. is from Eight Dodim, which is a modern text that was written in Israel. Israel by uh, Rav Knoll was originally written in, in Hebrew, but was so important I didn't translate it to English. It was translated to English. He says, for some women, the act of intercourse itself provides sufficient stimulation in order to climax, but in most cases, orgasm is achieved through gentle stimulation of the vagina area, specifically, specifically the clitoris. While masturbation is forbidden to men, that's a whole other class. I wouldn't, we don't, I don't know, we, there's a little bit more flexibility than this sentence. Because it involves wasting seed, a woman has no such limitation, and there is no problem with a husband bringing his wife to orgasm in this way. Most men ejaculate almost every time, whereas a woman may experience sexual pleasure without achieving orgasm. Nevertheless, she should not miss out on this experience, which is so fundamental to their life as a couple. And they should make an effort to achieve it often, if not always. Um, and then he talks about it in another place. The couple may also experience the opposite problem during the early days of marriage. The husband may experience early ejaculation. This is a common phenomenon, and the man should not be concerned that he is violating the progression against wasting seed. So here this is also interesting. Rather, he should view it as part of learning how to perform the mitzvah of marital relations. So once again, the idea that, um, that, um, that there is this thing called the mitzvah of, of sex, and it could override a problem of wasting your seed. Men often encounter initial difficulties. This is quite natural. He goes without saying that in trying to solve this problem, the husband should not cause his wife pain or discomfort. For, by, for example, by trying to prevent early ejaculation by hurrying his penetration before she is ready. So these are things in like traditional um, law books that are very concerned with how is she going to feel, what is the experience of the sexual act. Okay. Now I want to talk about consent because that was very, very important and we can't have a class without talking about consent. Um, the Talmud itself addresses this issue. Right here in the in Babylonian Talmud in um, in Erivan, it says, Amarav uh, Rami Bar Chama Amarav Asi, Asur La Adam Shiakov Ishto Ludvar Mitzvah, Shina Amar Eitz Baraglaim Chute. So he, she says, It is forbidden for a man to force his wife for the, ma the acts, the marital acts, which the Dvar Mitzvah, and it quotes, right? He that hasten his feet is, the, is a sinner. And Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, anyone who forces his wife to do this, he will have sons that are not worthy. Right? Again, this sort of fear that something bad will happen to your children. Um, and so the text is very, very clear. We don't have time to read the whole thing. You can look at it. That there, even within the marital union, you cannot force, which I think even... I don't know how it is in every state, but up until quite recently, there are even places where there was not such a thing as marital rape. But Halakha clearly has that idea. So in source number 17, we're back to the Egeret HaKodesh that we started with, right? What, it, what the right intention is. It says, When he has intercourse with her, he should not force her and he should not rape her. Because that type of chibur, remember we were talking about this union, 
Ein hashchina sharaf bo. The God does not reside in that type of union if there is force. Mipnei shekavanato behefech mikavanata. The ein dat ishto muskemet ladato. Why does God not reside there? Because his intention is the opposite of her intention, and his dad, his cognizant, his intent, in the intention of his wife does not agree with his. So there has to be an idea for, for this union to be this whole union that this text has been talking about, that somehow it's going to bring godliness into the world. They have to be on the same page. He cannot force her. Um, and they can't be fighting, and he can't hit her to have sex. It says it explicitly. Um, and then he quotes from Masechet Yoma that you can't be like a lion that just tramples and eats. Um, that would what he would compare the forcing to, um, but rather you should try to bring her heart um, through talking to her and making sure she's interested. Um, and then he also says a very interesting thing: you shouldn't have intercourse with her when he's she's sleeping, right? Because she's not cognizant and she's not right. Because your intentions aren't unified as one. Right, so it seems very clear that part of what he was talking about, the appropriateness, was not about denying pleasure or anything about that, but making sure you're at the same page, you're on the same page, and you're, and you're doing this together with the same intentionality of each one. Um, um, and so he says, right, that's basically his, his main thing, that in the conclusion, when you check yourself and see that you're ready for intercourse, work to make your wife's mind connected to your mind. You have to make sure that you're doing this together and you're on the same page. Um, and he, he, he spends a lot of time talking about this, right? And this is what I told you before about there shouldn't be with, it shouldn't be with lightheadedness and, and words of vanity, but you should be fully present in what you're doing, um, right? And because he wants you to tie your mind with her mind and with the, your intention with her intention. You should have the same kavanah for the sex act of coming together, right? And that could be coming together to give pleasure to each other, but you should be on the same page. Um, and he says you could talk about words of desires and etc., but just not everyday words. Um, source number 19. Source number 19 is um, the Ra'avad. He also, he speaks specifically about that Gemara that we saw about the overturning the table where it sounded like the man could do whatever he wants. So he says, That overturning the table, that's specifically that overturning the table which the, the rabbis permitted. Omer ani, I say, Dafka That is specifically talking about when he does not force it. And she desires what he's doing willingly. But if he forces her, that forcing, he, he becomes a sinner. Right? So, and then he says something that's very, very important. Um, he, he quotes that there's someone who that has the opinion. I don't know if I... Did I bring, he, he rejects this, but I'll tell you what. There's someone that has the opinion that says, well, let's say she wanted sex. If she wants sex, then you could do whatever you want. Right? You're not allowed to force her to have sex, but you could, you could force a specific act. And he says, no, Nireli, this is the last line, da asur la sotva shum davar, shalomi data, You can't do any act until she gives her consent and she agrees and she has her approved. So it can't be that she says, oh, I'm interested in sex, and then 
you don't decide what that means. I think, as far as I understand from people who are on college campus today, when I taught this around, when I was going on my tour of a few places, they said this is a very hot button topic on college campus, right? Is it, what do, do she, do you, do you, what is agreement? And so the halakha is very clear that the agreement has to be for the specific sex act, right? The Aliyah um, Rabbah says the same thing in source number 20. He says, here he says, Right, you could have intercourse like the majority of annals do with rear entry. It appears to me that all these acts of intercourse are specifically with her consent. Even if he has intercourse and then has, wants to have intercourse again, he has to give consent. But forcing, even when she desires sex, is considered that you are a sinner, right? He too says you have to agree to the specific act. You can't have some, you know she's interested, but you have to know that she's interested in this specific act. So I, I and these are texts that we're balancing with those other texts. I just tried to do it clearly. So on the one hand, it's clear that one's desire is important. What you're interested, if you want cooked meat or salt meat, that's important. But you have to be sure that you're on the same page with your partner. Right? And the way the Garrett Hakodish thinks that a good union is, is if you have the right type of partner who's interested in the right things. It seems like simple advice, but I, um, I think it's important that the text states it. Right? We, you can't let your desire just run out of control. I didn't bring you texts, but they're also very interesting texts that, um, that say you're not allowed to have sex when you're angry. One that I found very interesting is that you're not allowed to have sex when you're drunk. So I first thought that, like... They're talking about a husband and wife. They're married. Like, shouldn't it be their choice that they should be able to? Like, so they want to have sex when they're drunk. But all the commentaries on that say very clearly that 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 doesn't have the love aspect. I Meaning, there's something about you need to be conscious of what you're doing and really connecting with the other person and being fully present in this act that can be enjoyable. But you have to be present in that with the other person, and you can't be disconnected from them. Which is, I think, the same as why you can have it when one partner is asleep. Although there is more. An instance of force. Any questions so far? I've been talking quickly. So ask a question so I can drink some water. <laughs> no question. Really? Okay. Wow. Yeah. You talk yeah. about that they need to be on the same page. Yeah. Um, what about um, the, the communication isn't there? What if I mean, there, there, there are issues sometimes <coughs> after the fact, maybe somebody says, hey, you know what? That wasn't so good. Well, you're... You're asking something important. It, what is interesting is, I don't know if I read them out carefully, but there are definitely texts that talk about that you should be able, that you should for sure talk to her beforehand. So there's some type, I don't know how, you know, I don't, clearly also it like ruins some of the, 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 the um, passion or the, uh, what's the word I want to say? Spontaneity of the act, right? We don't need someone to like sign on the dotted line every single time. But I think that there's some type of conversation. Clearly, if, I, I don't think, you know, I, you're right, that after the act, someone could say, I, I didn't like that so much. And that could be that they only found out by doing the act that they felt that way, and that would, that would be information for the next time. You're right that I think communication is very, very important, and that's why I mentioned the halakha is very clear that you shouldn't have sex when you're angry, you shouldn't have sex when you're fighting, you shouldn't, meaning I think all those things lead to la sort of would, would be a, uh, a breeding ground for lack of communication. 
You're right, and it's hard work. You have to. We didn't talk about communication, but it seems like it's something that you have to work on and talk about, and be sure that you are on the same page. Perhaps that's why no, no, don't be drunk. Emotionally present. Correct. Be emotionally present. I mean, there are a lot of holophones. You're not supposed. To, I mean, this might seem obvious, but if you're thinking about getting divorced, they say you shouldn't have sex. If you're thinking about another woman, they say you shouldn't have sex. I mean, there's so many things that I think we know instinctively, but to me, I look at them more about this real idea of. It's not that we want to deny the pleasure, but we actually want you to be present with the other person and that it's a, a two people having pleasure together as a connecting, right? We saw the text that said that this is part of the Ahafta Lareacha Kamocha. So there's a, there is a, I, I'm, ha I'm loving you from a lust, uh, erotic way, but I'm also loving you because I love you like myself. There's a partnership there that I think is definitely part of what the, the idea of the sex act here is with Judaism. Yeah. So it, it, oh, please go ahead. So and I, I had one more question, yeah. too, that, that goes along with that. What about the flip side, where uh, the man's not supposed to think of another woman? What about the woman not thinking of another man? Is there anything I, written? That's interesting. I have not seen that I'm just trying to think about. It says specifically the man shouldn't think of another woman. I don't remember it written in the flip, which is kind of interesting, actually, considering that legally, in theory, he, he's allowed to have more than one wife, and she's actually not allowed to have more, more than one husband. So it, it, like it is, it, there is something interesting about it. Some of the commentaries where he says she shouldn't think of another woman say, even if that other woman is his wife, which I know it's hard for us to learn anything positive about a polygamous relationship, but what that proves to me means... That woman's permissism. The other woman is his wife, but they want you fully present with this wife and thinking about that. But I, you're, I haven't thought about that. I don't remember it saying explicitly that the woman shouldn't think of another man. I'm not sure why, though. I would assume it should be the flip, maybe because most of the halakha is speaking of the men. I don't know. Yes, what did you want to ask? So, so in American law, an adult can't have relations with a minor defined as 18. Yeah. Um, why are you bringing this up? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so an adult... The, defined by, by Jewish tradition is 12 for a girl and 13 for a boy. Is that is there also a sense that consent requires adulthood? And um, uh, and is 12 and 13 universally kind of accepted as that age, or is there a sense that actually there's an older age that's also necessary? I had never thought about it from that perspective. Sadly, and I am pained by this, there are places in the halakha that talk about having intercourse with children under the age of that mm -hmm. statement, mm -hmm. which I find shocking, although the only thing I try to like make myself feel a little bit better about is I think that people got married significantly younger than we do today. But there is definitely talk about having intercourse with a woman before she reaches puberty. So that, even for them, although I guess people were marrying off girls before they reached puberty. So there, the, the, it sounds like from these things that his wife has to consent, but it doesn't sound like consent is something that is with age. So I don't know... As we can say, right in, in, in secular law, in American law, that the premise is that a, a young child doesn't have the capability of consenting or not consenting because of the because of the hierarchy in the relationship, right. the other adult is putting pressure. I have not. Is it common in Hasidic circles today to, to get married before eighteen? 
Well, no, we don't. We don't do Kedusha Katana anymore. I don't think we do. Oh no, there was a whole 17? thing in Israel about, about Haredi lowering the age. They they wanted to raise the age of marriage, and they were saying Haredi girls are, are more mature because they help run the household. But it, so I, I, I think, think we're still talking 16, seventeen or sixteen. 16, okay, so I'm not an excerpt, but I I don't think okay. I I think it's somewhat rare sixteen. Mm -hmm. I think you have to have parental permission. I think in America you can get you can marry off a child that's sixteen if there's parental permission. Um, fifteen, even with parental permission. So um, I'm not an expert in that. I'd have to research it. A, what the Israeli lies, and B, it would be interesting to see if there's any discussion about consent specifically linked to age. I would have to look into it. I don't know the answer to that. That's a very good question. Um, yes. Did you have another question? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm off on a tangent a bit. Yes, you are. I'm always off on a tangent. Um, when was the Reformation? When was Martin Luther? <laughs> Wait, that's not my area of expertise. I think it's about that time. Mm -hmm. And that's when sex became, you know, only for it wasn't the Catholic religion. They didn't Roman Catholics didn't have that. That was a Protestant thing where it's sin and it's the original sin got transferred into sex. Uh, I do and know so that I'm people if yeah. it's, if it's you know, so there. some people, I do know that I have read some scholars who want to say that Rabbi Yosef Kara was influenced by Christian society, but it was a little confusing to me because he doesn't really live amongst Christians. He's living in spot and things like that. So I, I, I have not, I have not researched like the historical link to this. That would definitely be interesting to see where people live, what the sexual norms of those places are, and how it affects their writing, because there for sure is correlation between that. Um, the last thing that I want to show you, and I, I know it, it's actually a little bit technical halakhically, but to me it's very interesting, I hope I'll be able to convey it, is, is this what I told you at the premise, that the desire for sex is considered a halakhic need in its own right. And I see this in two responses um, written by Rav Moshe Feinstein, who is the leader of um, not even modern orthodoxy, to the right, centrist or somewhat black, um, black hat, black means black hat, um, orthodoxy in America in the last century. He was a prolific um, legal decider and wrote many letters in responses to questions that people were asked of him. And so this first text in Source 21, both of the texts deal with issues of birth control, but in different ways. Um, he is, he's referring to a text that appears in the Gemara <laughs> that if we had more time I would have brought you, that Rabbi Eliezer, who's a Tana from the time period of the Mishnah, says that um, during the period where your wife is nursing for 24 months, um, you should be Zorea bif, uh, hold on I just want to say the exact phrase right Zorea bifnim Odash bifnim v'zorea bachutz you should winnow within and, and plant the seed without meaning you should pull out and ejaculate so the idea here is that at that time period, they didn't have formula, they didn't have a way to sustain a child except through nursing, and you wanted to make sure that the child is going to have enough milk. So a woman who is nursing a child for the first two years, you don't want her to get pregnant, because once she gets pregnant, her milk supply is going to decrease, and, and the competition of another mouth to feed threatens the life of the first child. And so that is an important time period where they really felt the need for birth control. So Rabbi Eliezer, and they definitely have a sense of birth control then, but it's not, clearly not probably worked as well as our birth control, and even our birth control is not perfect, right? So he makes a suggestion that you should, you should, um, you should have penetrative intercourse, but that you should withdraw to ejaculate, which is interesting in general, and this is part of his discussion, because he could have said just don't have sex, right, or refrain from having sex, and it's clear 
that the understanding is that people want to have sex. They also have another type of birth control that they know about, which was that a woman would insert something inside her, something, some type of like a diaphragm. We're not sure exactly. Like in Hebrew, it's called a moch. Maybe it was a piece of cloth or felt or something that was some type of absorbent. And they have an understanding that you could possibly drink some type of poison that would sterilize you, but the, they have senses of trying to do something to prevent conception. So he's talking about the case of Rabbi Eliezer, who says withdraw and ejaculate. And so in this discussion, he says, um, he, he says the reason he's allowed to ejaculate outside, which sounds really like spilling your seed, um, is because... Um, that there is this um, need for giving pleasure to the wife. Let me see. <coughs> um, sort of in the middle of page 12, it's in the Hebrew, it says, right? The reason that it's permissible is because there is this mitzvah of giving your wife pleasure and of making her happy. Um, and so, and then he even says further on, because he talks about the idea that you could have anal sex, and he's going to come back to this in a second. He says, "Af." This is after the three dots, um, where he said, "Aval right? If you so sometimes want to have anal sex, it's permissible when you desire it. mitzvah, right? Even when it's not for doing the mitzvah. Um, so he says that even this desire is considered a tzorach, a need between a husband and a wife. And just the desire for pleasure is considered a need that he's saying, right, meaning, uh, let me say it clearly so you can understand the whole <coughs> language, right? You're not supposed to spill your seed for nothing, for no need, okay? So, but what, what you might have thought the only need that you're allowed to spill your seed for is to conceive a child, but he's saying no, there's a halachic need that's called sexual pleasure. And that's a need enough that enables you to spill your seed. But it's now called not spilling because it's, it's done out of pleasure. Did I explain that clearly, if you understand? I'm talking like technical halacha language, but it's, it, the, the technical language is important. right? It's not considered for not because it's for something. What is the something? His pleasure. And so that's not spilling your seed for not. It's spilling it for pleasure. And that's halachically okay. That, did I explain it better, better now? So and yeah. Sorry. So what? it's really saying nothing. It's, it's just saying that it's allowed, and that's it. Yeah, but I mean, it what is. Of words? It's, it's not. It's what I'm trying to say to you, though, is I'm trying to show you how much the law values the pleasure. That's what I'm trying to say to you, right? The, the law could have said, okay, so you want to have birth control, so don't have sex. You're not allowed to spill your seed, or that—that's the lock of the But this, he's saying no. There's a need. It's called I want to have sex. And that's considered. I know that sounds funny, but that's considered a halakhic need. Maybe it only works well if you're in the halakhic mindset. Yes. Where is the kind of modern concept in the Haredi community of not using birth control and you know not spilling your seed kind of thing come from? Um. Okay. Can Can I read one more text sure. and then I can answer that question because I wanted to show you how strong this is. So. Text number 22, text, text, sex number, text number 22 <laughs> is a text where now the case isn't that the wife is like nursing or there's some reason that you might say she needs to use birth control. No, the case is, get this, I know you don't know any women like this, the woman refuses to have sex without birth control because she does not want to have any more kids. Surprise, surprise. So, and so the questioner is asking <laughs> of Moshe, like, what should he do? She refuses to have intercourse without birth control. 
So Ramosha, he's not thrilled with this behavior of the women. I'm not saying he's thrilled. And he basically says possibly, right, so he possibly claims that maybe you should even divorce this woman. But what can you do? The guy actually loves the woman and wants to have sex with her and isn't interested in divorcing her. And he wants to know what she should do. So that's the scenario. Completely like there's no, this her desire not to have children. And so what does he answer? He answers the same thing. Um, he says, um, starting in the middle, Yesh makom latirlo l'shamesh ima b'moch. There is place to permit for him to have intercourse with this moch that she's going to insert something inside of her, probably a diaphragm in this case. B'sha'atish tashmish, at the moment of intercourse. L'hamatirim livol bakrai shalok darka. Why should he say that this man is allowed to do this? According to the opinion that says she's allowed to have um, anal intercourse occasionally. Now listen to what he says. You have to be with your put your legal cap on, um, right? You're allowed to occasionally have anal intercourse, even though you're spilling your seed, because that's considered even when it's not litzorach mitzvah. Nechshad litzorach kevan It's not considered the mitzvah of doing ona. It's just considered a, a, the need that he desires her. And then he says something very important. He says, which is obvious, but if you think about it, the fact that they permitted it sometimes, he says, means that it has to be permitted all the time. Because with prohibitions, you know it's a prohibition? It's okay to murder sometimes, just don't do it all the time. Once you say something's permitted sometimes, it really means it's permitted all the time. Uh, because you can't have it just sometimes with a prohibition. This is what he said. And therefore, he says, that this man can have intercourse with birth control all the time. He says, There's no need for a mitzvah. There's no mitzvah here, because they're never going to get pregnant or anything like that, right? Nevertheless, since he desires her, this is considered a need, and it's not considered spilling your seed, and it's permissible. So I just wanted to just make your question even stronger. Mm-hmm. I, he does go on. I don't know if I brought you to the end. He does go on that says, um, no, I didn't bring you the end, end, end. I just have to tell you. What he says is, he says, don't tell any He published it. So, But he says, don't let people know this because they'll misuse it. Because he realizes what he's saying is, is somehow perceived as radical within the halakha. So I, I, can't, I can't answer for the entire Haredi world. But this is what I would say. I think, first of all, there's two things. I think there's an emotional thing and there's a halakhic thing. An emotional thing is that a lot of people, not just in the Haredi world, I have friends like this, that feel somehow post the Holocaust that they have an obligation to, to have as many Jewish lives as they want, whether we agree with that or not. That's one thing. From a halakhic perspective, I do think that there is an idea that, that Judaism does value children and that bringing children into the world is a positive thing. Although the halakha says that men are required to reproduce, women aren't required to reproduce. And there is a, a, a they, as they defined how many times you should have intercourse, they define how many kids that means, and they, and they say two children, it doesn't matter what gender, it seems to be that the couple themselves should be reproduced through the man's obligation. Um, but there is an idea that having more children is a blessing and is a positive thing. And so I think that the Haredi world is going like that. It's clear that when he's discussing if you can use birth control, it, right, he's, not, he's not like jumping for joy, this is the best thing. And so there's like, I, I, I presume they're sort of like going beyond the letter of the law to some extent and, and wanting to have more children. But I can't speak for them completely. Um, 
I, I only have the text that I see, and it's clear within halacha that we do consider that birth control is an option. Just the way we have sex with women who are pregnant or sex with women who are past, who are menopausal who are, or who, who unfortunately can't have children. Right? We, don't, we, we have sex with lots of people. We, men have sex with lots of women who can't <coughs> reproduce, and it's not considered. right. As opposed to the Catholic Church that really thinks that sex is only about having kids. That's not the general idea within halakha. Yes? I'm not sure that uh, for something to be slightly or occasionally permitted that it's always permitted on two grounds. Yep. First, in source number 10, the tour, we already see that occasionally it's okay, but it's prohibited to do so habitually. So that's an example where something... No, he's talking be- exactly about that example. That's what he's saying. He said, in the text, he's talking about that... Ex- I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you want to finish? No, please can- I'm sorry. He is referring to that case about anal intercourse, where the text said only do it... Occasionally, right? I didn't. We didn't. We didn't have all the time in the world. All the commentators there say, like, why only occasionally? Like, why? Why not? And bizarre, different types of answers are given, ranging from someone says you can't possibly enjoy anal sex all that much, so um, like it wouldn't. It's just natural that you wouldn't want to do it. Like they have all sorts of preconceived notions about anal sex. Some people even claim there's a whole train I didn't bring you that says women don't like anal sex, and other people say, what are you talking about? Everyone finds pleasure in it. Like, it's interesting to see, because they not, not, they're not working off verses. Presumably, everyone's bringing their sort of own views about what sexuality is. But um, I think most of the commentators there think that, well, if you're always doing it, that means you never want to reproduce, and that's showing something about your intention, and we also value reproducing. But... That, to makes, get to your, that makes sense, but what I'm saying is that contradicts right, so, the final source we so, said where the author So, But that's what he's referring to. He's referring to that text, and he says, that text said, only do it occasionally. Okay. And now Rav Moshe Feinstein is saying, wait a second, with Isurim, here, I'll, uh, I can read it to you in the words again if you want. Mm-hmm. Let me just find it. Hold on. Here, um, I'm on page 13. Um, there is a three dots about two-thirds of the way down, and I'm like the line before it. Um, so he says, he says, Aftamid, it's permissible, he's saying, that this person can use the, the birth control always. Mishum, de'ein shum chiluk, bein ba'akrai letamid bi'isurim. Because there is no distinction between habitually and always with Isurim. And so let me explain to you what he's saying. He's saying, I saw in earlier texts that they said anal sex and ejaculation was allowed sometimes. And that, in theory, might be something that's asur to waste your seed. But I know that if it was something that was be asur, then it wouldn't be permissible just optionally. Therefore, because they permitted it optionally, it must be permissible all the time, and therefore, in this case, I'm going to rule that they can do it all the time. Did I say it clearly? He's learning from the case that they said, like the tour, that it was optional, not optional, occasional, and he says, okay, it can't possibly be that it's something that's a sewer, because I wouldn't permit it occasionally. So since they said occasionally, and they were sort of making a public policy statement to only do it occasionally... But from the letter of the law, it must be completely allowed all the time. Because if it was a prohibition, I, would o- I wouldn't limit it only occasionally. Did I say it? Did, did people follow what I'm saying? But he's learning it from that case. 
And I think he, what he says makes sense. Something that's permitted, permissible, sorry, something that's prohibited, you can't, you can't say it, it, you could do it sometimes. Once you're saying you could do it sometimes, it's not a prohibition anymore. And then he, and you might make a value judgment or a social statement or a public policy that I don't advise you to do it all the time. But in this case, where the guy needs to do it all the time because his wife doesn't want to have intercourse any other way and he desires to continue to have sex with her, Rav Moshe is going to permit it all the time. That makes sense. Yes, in the back. Last question, yeah. Yeah. Just check to make sure I was right. The original prohibition comes from spilling the seed on the ground. Well, that that's that that's a masloket. Not everyone agrees that that pasuk is referring to spilling the seed. But yes, continue well, with what you want to say. No, it just it says that. So it so, does say that. You yes. know, anal intercourse is not spilling it on the ground. Well, the, the, it's not having children. It's not. He was supposed to get her pregnant and. and well, that the case you're talking about is in Genesis, where um, Tamar's husband dies, and he's, she's supposed to do Leverite marriage with the brothers. The, the story there is that they are supposed to get her pregnant because they're supposed to continue the brother's name, and they actively don't get her pregnant, so they're calling it spilling it on the ground. I think there is a comparison here because the issue is that the seed is not going to impregnate. But I don't want to get into that because although people like to quote that as the source for why we say something like men shouldn't spill their seed, not everyone, that would make it a biblical prohibition and most of the rabbinic authorities do not think that that's a biblical prohibition and they do not necessarily learn it from there. So that's like a whole other thing that I'm going to leave. So I'm ending here. So the hopefully what I hope you saw, and it was interesting whether you live your life bound by halakha or not, is just to see what our tradition has to say about these issues. That halakha seems to value pleasure and desire in its own right. It definitely has stereotypes of what it thinks men and women like, but it seems to be concerned with both meeting both sides of the, uh, both male and female's needs. Um, definitely it's important to have consent. It's important to be on the same page and that this relationship in which you're having pleasure should be a meeting of two people together experiencing a pleasure together to be cognizant, to be present. And somehow, as the Egeret HaKodesh said, that enables the Shechina, that that ex experience of godliness is present in that union. Amen. Thank Amen. you very much. I, I can't believe how much you packed in to an hour and a half session. <laughs> like my head's about to explode from all that. So, speed um, lecture. It was. I hope. I, I hope everyone takes the opportunity to continue to be reflective of all aspects of life. This is one serious dimension of life, and to be communicative with our partners about what's meaningful and intentional and and uh, and mutual, and um, uh, and and to find kedusha, find meaning and holiness and joy in, in all aspects of life, in, in, including this. Thank you so much for hosting Rabbi Linder and Temple Thank Solo. You. Thank you all for joining. And thank you, Rabbi Berkowitz, who's flying back to Israel after a few weeks of teaching in America. So safe travels.